Uh, Father, we do come before you this morning to uh, thank you and praise that we can gather together here today. Father, we thank you that uh, because of the Reformation, because of many reformers, men and women and teenagers and children, who, Lord, uh, gave up their lives uh, for the gospel, uh, Lord, today we meet because of them. We meet because of the foundations that they uh, built upon the gospel that, Lord, has called us also into uh, being a Protestant church, a church out of the Reformation. So, Lord, today I pray you'll help read about history. Uh, I like to go into museums and take my time to read all the plaques that they have attached with pictures or displays. You know, you often see a big picture in a museum, you see a plaque or a display underneath there that sort of tells you a bit of a description about that um, picture you can see in the background. Uh, this can be much to the dis- displeasure of my family because sometimes I'm, they've gone through the museum and I'm up to the third display out of ten and I'm sort of trailing a long way behind them. But I enjoy actually reading these things and sort of getting in behind and seeing what's happening there to that. I haven't always been like that. Uh, when I was at school, history wasn't my favourite subject. I had a teacher called Mrs Crocker. It's a good name for a teacher, isn't it? All those years ago. And uh, her and I didn't always see eye to eye about history. Uh, I couldn't work out why the pharaohs in the Egyptian tombs and pyramids were going to help me to become a better footballer or a better orchardist. I couldn't quite compute these two things about history here with football or growing fruit. So I didn't always sort of um, see history as my top subject or my thing to do. But there's much to learn from history. There's really, really much to learn from history as we think about what has taken place in the past. There's much to see in history how people haven't changed over the centuries. People haven't changed. Uh, Technology and industry certainly has changed over the centuries if we look back on history and where it's developed uh, from a technological side and industrial side. But people's desires back then are the same desires that we have today. People haven't changed. Whether it's a pursuit of happiness or freedom or greed and exploitation to become wealthy, People haven't changed as we study history. The same desires back then for people are the same desires today. History is really important for us, though, as we think about that and we think about what's happened in our world and the way God has ordained things to take place. So when we think about the Reformation, we have to think about history because we're dealing back here hundreds of years ago. Some of the initial parts of the Reformation were from the 1300s. So that's sort of 800 years ago when that uh, took place. The word reformation or reformed or reforming means something that is changed or improved. It's a bit like this. If you send a convicted criminal to prison, we are sending him or her there to be reformed. We're sending them to prison so they will come out of there, hopefully at the end of their prison sentence, changed, renewed or improved. We want them to come out a reformed prisoner. So this reformation here we're thinking about is something of change or renewal or improvement. So as we think about this with the reformation today, we're thinking about it from the perspective of a church reformation. A church reformation, that is the Christian church that went through change, renewal and improvement uh, all those years ago. Now the change that the church went through was massive change. It was really massive change back all those years ago. We We went through it very slowly But from where it is today and from where it was back then, it has undertaken a massive, massive change, albeit slowly in the initial stages. What we'll see here as we think about this church reformation is that the church at that time, prior to this reformation of 1517, had majorly departed from the Bible and had gone down a path of man-centred ideas. 
the church had gone way, way, way from the Bible and gone right down a path of man-centered ideas. And when that's the case, uh, corruption and abuses of the people had blown out in all sorts of places in history back then. What the, what the Reformation brought about was a return to the Bible and the primary teaching of justification by faith alone for salvation was the primary teaching that sort of gave birth or was rediscovered again in the Scriptures uh, during the period of the Reformation. So there's some things we'll look at today as, uh, as we think about that. So let's, uh, let's dive into some church history. Uh, to grasp what happened around the 1500s, we need to see how the church was developing leading up to that time. What was the church going through? How did it actually get to this point of 1517? The church was born about 30 AD with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was the head of the church. Now, the Holy Spirit indwelled the believers on the day of Pentecost, so we as New Testament believers marked that off, somewhat marked it off, as the birth of the New Testament church. So we see there around 30 AD, thereabouts, at the resurrection of Christ, uh, we see the birth of the New Testament church. Now the church struggled on for the first 300 years or so. It uh, went through various persecutions and times of peace. It struggled on and off through these first 300 years. Thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians were martyred by the Roman Empire in these first few centuries. Um, unbelievable numbers were killed. Uh, the Colosseum was primarily built uh, for Roman sports, and that was to kill Christians, fed to the lions. That was happening regularly first through these uh, first 300 years. Tradition also tells us that 11 of the 12 original apostles were all executed for their faith, martyred for their faith. A reflection again of the hard times the church went through in those early years. There also were times of peace and relative calm, but they were very short-lived and were few and far between. More often than not, the church was seen as a blight on society. The church was seen as a bad thing for the community and the church was treated harshly. Much of the New Testament you read through is dealing with a church here that was struggling to cope with the community that it lived in because the community didn't appreciate the church at that particular time. The church in those times, it grew on the teachings of the Old Testament and also the writings and teachings of the apostles, those who were the witnesses of the resurrected Christ. They wrote their letters to the churches to give them encouragement, to build them up and to give them teaching as well. So they were built on the scriptures of the Old Testament and also the teachings of the apostles of Christ who witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Uh, things remained that way through sort of various persecutions and trials and struggles to around 313 AD, so about 270 odd years later. A major change took place here in this period of time. Uh, the Roman emperors were still in power and the Roman emperor Constantine declared Christianity to be the authorised religion of the Roman Empire. So Christianity took a whole new turn at this particular time. It became the recognised, authorised religion of the Roman Empire. It became the one that they were going to adhere to. This particular time, again, the church went through lots and lots of change. Lots of controversies have come around this particular time as well and leading up to that. They had all sorts of people rising up making these false claims about God and who Jesus was. There was lots of deception going around saying that Jesus... Um, wasn't really God. He was just a human and vice versa. It was other way. Jesus was just a phantom. He didn't die on the cross. They had a whole number of we call heresies or untruths about Christ going through all the churches and Christianity through them. They had lots of councils to try and actually establish what is the truth here that we believe about Jesus. 
So there's lots of controversy going on at this particular time. All sorts of people rising up, making false claims about who Jesus is and the nature of God. In 397 AD, so about <clears throat> 70 years later, 80 years later, the church leaders agreed here upon the canon of Scripture. They believed, they, they actually lined up and said, this is a, these are the 66 books that we have uh, authorised or believed to be the inspired word of God of the Old and New Testament. So that was like 397 AD. They said, these are the 66 books that we have. They already had the Old Testament and they put testings for the New Testament books. And this particular time they said, right, this is it. This is what we have now. This is what we will build our Christian faith on. And we believe as Christians today that God's Spirit was working through all of those people at that time to um, identify those books and compile them together in what we call the canon of Scripture or the Bible. So 397 AD is when that took place. So in and through that now, this has given the Christian church something to build doctrine onto, something objective, something sound, something as a foundation that we actually, this is, where we, this is what we believe, this is where we build our church teachings on, or this is where we build our doctrines about God and salvation on that. Through this period of time also and going forward, the church grew stronger and stronger in its relationship with the state or the ruling government of the day. The strength and the influence of the church grew so much that by about 600 AD, so this is about 300 years later, the church was now exercising power over the government. The church was telling the government what to do. The church doesn't tell the government what to do today, do we? It's the other way around. They basically tell us what to do. But back then, back then, uh, the church and the government had really become one and the church was now directing the government. A very significant moment of, uh, in time of history here. The church was now actually telling the government what to do and how to do it. The church leadership itself had now based itself primarily in Rome. Rome being sort of the seat of power of the world and the church gravitated itself to there. So the Roman church then became the seat of power uh, throughout the known world of the day. And when I say that, didn't matter where other nation states were or city states were around the world, this Roman church was beginning to exercise power over all of these uh, city states or nation states back then. They weren't all necessarily countries back then. Some were just cities which ruled themselves as a sort of a nation within a city. But the Roman church uh, was exercising power over here and they were dictating how things would happen. Whatever the rules the church put out, the whole town just took and the whole town lived by that rule. But with this absolute power came the beginnings here of absolute corruption and abuses within the church. As they seem to have developed more and more power and exercising power of the government, this power that came to them actually began to produce itself in corruption and abuses. So for the next 900 years or so, the Roman church grew in power and in wealth. Massive power and massive wealth over the next 900 years. So much so, it probably reached its highest point by about AD 1200, 1100. Uh, it was absolutely supremely ruling in every nation state, every city state all over the world. The church also at this time and through that period of time over the next 900 years uh, departed from the teachings of the Bible and began to teach man-made traditions and develop more and more and more of those over that next 900 years. That then is a brief snapshot, snapshot that leads us up to the point here of the 1500s. 
of the 1500s when we talk about this Reformation here in 1517. Some of the corruptions, though, that evolved out of that period of 900 years or more were things like this that the church began to teach. Priests in the Roman church were forbidden to marry. They were told, you cannot marry. It's forbidden for a priest to marry. But at the same time as forbidding priests to marry, many, many priests were living in rampant immorality, some of them having up to 14 different children from multiple, multiple relationships. Some of them were secretly married. No one knew about it. They had a wife they married secretly, so no one knew about it, so they could still save face and say, hey, I'm a celibate priest. When they weren't a celibate priest, they were... Uh, married to somebody secretly. So the Roman church was, was teaching that priests are forbidden to marry. And something else was this. The bishop or the head priest of Rome had then become the representative of Christ. The church had grown and developed to such a point that they said now that the bishop of Rome has now become the sole representative of Christ here upon earth. So what the bishop said, what the bishop of Rome had said, had the same authority as what God would say. So if the bishop of Rome said it, the authority of God was behind what he said. So what he said was God's words. The teachings of the church also in this particular time, leading up to the 1500s, had developed to such a point that they put alongside them the Bible's authority. So whatever the church taught, they'd say this is the same authority as the Bible we have today. If, if we say it as a church, you must believe it just as much as what the Bible would say. The church also had devised over this period of time seven sacraments or rituals that a person had to go through to gain or merit salvation. You had to actually participate in these seven sacraments or these seven rituals in order to gain or merit salvation to guarantee your place in heaven. And only a priest could administer those rituals. A priest had to be there to go through these seven rites or seven sacraments or seven rituals so that you could... uh, have a chance of getting to heaven. The church also taught at this particular time, over this sort of 900 years of developing man-made traditions, the church taught also that if you failed in those seven sacraments or you failed in other areas to try and uh, get your way to heaven, you went to a place called purgatory. They taught this is like a halfway place. You could get to purgatory if you didn't quite make it in those other areas and you failed and, and then missed the mark. Okay, you were trapped in this halfway place between heaven and hell, a place called purgatory. Again, the church had developed another teaching for this to help get people out of purgatory. And what they did then was they could say you could buy special indulgences. You could buy uh, merit, as it were, favours of the Bishop of Rome, pay a certain amount of money. He would give you an indulgence, a written piece of paper, to say that you have purchased this indulgence, which was a favour from the Bishop of Rome. And if you bought enough of these indulgences or favours from the Bishop of Rome, you could get your dead loved one out of purgatory and into heaven. That was another thing the church began to teach here uh, leading up to this uh, 1500s. As you can see, it's uh, very much uh, a man-centred, man-made religion as they began to develop these things. And they put all these things alongside the teachings of the Bible and uh, said uh, equal authority to the Bible. They're just some. They're just some of the corruptions and some of the abuses the church had gone down the path of and leading up to this point in the 1500s. And the major, major problem with all these things was that the church of the day actually preached that with the authority of God. This is what you must do. 
This is what you must believe. This is how you must live. The Bible in that day was only to be kept kept in the Latin language. And it can only be read in the Latin language. They believe that was the purity of God's word. had to be kept in that mother tongue of the country, of Latin. So it could only be kept in the Latin language and only read in the Latin language. So the masses and masses and masses of people of those countries and nations had no education in Latin. They couldn't read Latin. They couldn't understand Latin. So they were kept totally in the dark here of God's word. They were kept totally in the dark of the scriptures. So they couldn't tell whether these traditions that the church was teaching were right or wrong because they couldn't read the Bible. They couldn't understand the Bible. Everything was in Latin. It was kept from them. This is the picture of the church leading up to the early 1500s. It was corrupt. It was abusive. It was wealthy. And it was man-centred. And the word of God was hidden from the people. A very dark picture. So what was God doing while the church, unfortunately, went down this path? Was God standing idly by, just letting all this happen and just letting his church slip away into sort of this dark, dark state? The sovereignty of God is often a very large mystery to us. Very difficult for us to understand what's happening there. But we do know that God was absolutely moving in the hearts and minds of many people throughout this time. They were looking at this and thinking there's something not right about this. There's something not right about where the church is going. There's something not right about what we're doing as a way to try and earn God's favour. There's three people we'll quickly look at, just quickly look at here, who were the early reformers who began to see this. They began to see, hang on, there's something that's going astray. There's something that's actually leaving the course or leaving the path here. And one of the earliest ones was a man by the name of John Wycliffe of England. Uh, born in 1330, so this is a good couple of hundred years before the Reformation, was one of the earliest reformers. He was well trained in Latin and could read the Bible. He was a priest in the church, so he was taught there in Latin how to read and how to speak Latin. And what he saw in the Bible, in contrast to what he saw in the church, were two different things. As he read the Bible in Latin, and then as he participated in the church and saw other things going on in and around the church, he said, I can't make these two line up. There's something really wrong here. At that particular time, the Roman church was seeking, was on a major building expansion back in Rome, building all sorts of cathedrals and many things you can see there today. And to do that, they would raise taxes from around the world. They would just put out an edict. Um, there's a church tax on. And uh, this, one of these taxes came across, came across to England when John Wycliffe was there. And they pushed these taxes onto the poor peasant farmers to give more money to raise to build these buildings uh, back in Rome. And John Wycliffe saw this and said, this is crazy. This is an absolute abuse. I can't find this anywhere in the scriptures. So John Wycliffe went on and his desire there was for every English person to read the Bible in English so everybody could read this and begin to see what God's word was. And this is what he said here as a quote from uh, John Wycliffe. Believing that every Christian should have access to the scripture... Only Latin translations were available at that time. He began translating the Bible into English with the help of his good friend, John Purvey. The church's response. The church bitterly opposed it. By this translation, the scriptures have become vulgar. They are more available to lay and even to women who can read than they were to learned scholars who have a high intelligence. So the pearl of the gospel is scattered and trodden underfoot underfoot by swine. 
John Wycliffe said, no, we, we need to get the Bible out there so that we can have it read. And you can see there the church actually wanted to keep it back in their original language and keep it hidden uh, from the masses. Another reformer, about 50 years later, uh, was a man from Czechoslovakia called Jan Hus. He was born in 1369 and trained as a priest in the Roman church as well. He too learned to read the Bible in Latin and being trained as a priest and discovered as he read that the church had strayed far away from the truth. He couldn't see anywhere in the Bible that it gave supreme authority to the Bishop of Rome. He read through and he read through and he read through and he said, I can't can't find this anywhere where the Bishop of Rome says this and we must all go and do it because this is the very authority of God behind him. He couldn't see that anywhere. He began to protest in uh, 13, about 13, 1400. He began to protest to the Roman church on this matter as well as a whole heap of other matters, matters that he saw as he read the Bible. The church didn't receive it well. Not at all did they receive it well. He was invited to a church council meeting to actually air his views and to discuss his views and maybe to have some sort of a discussion about it. So Jan Hus was told, yes, you'll be safe conduct and safe carriage to go there. So he decided he would go. He left the safety where he was and met with his church council. But the whole thing was a setup. The whole thing was a setup. Uh, Jan Hus arrived at this meeting and he was told immediately to recant all of his blasphemous and so-called heresies. He refused and the church council at that time imprisoned him and later burnt him at the stake for his opposition to the church teachings of that day. So he was one of those early reformers as well who stood up under the convictions of God's word and the gospel uh, to proclaim what was the truth. Another well-known reformer was Martin Luther, who many of you probably would know his name here. And this is more back to the day of uh, 1517 that we're now reflecting on. Martin Luther was born in Germany in 1483. He went to university to study law and as about a 14-year-old he entered university and was one of the youngest and the quickest to go through university and complete his law degree. Uh, A very intelligent young man. During a thunderstorm one day, which nearly killed him as he's running to get home, uh, this thunderstorm had a bolt of lightning that struck very close to him. He made a vow there and then on the spot that if he should be saved from this thunderstorm, he said, I will become a monk. I will become a monk. And he did become a monk. He became a monk in the, uh, the Roman church at that time. But he had a horrible time. Horrible time. I'd really encourage you to read a biography of Martin Luther. He had a horrible time in trying to gain his salvation by being obedient to God's law. He had a horrible time. He just failed miserably all the time. He put himself through all sorts of um, sort of deprivation or trying to deprive himself of things to somehow gain God's blessing. He would go on strict fasting for Days and days and weeks and weeks of nothing but stale bread and water, trying to merit somehow God's favour in his life. Uh, he also chose in the, in the desperately freezing cold conditions of Germany in the middle of winter, he chose to sleep in just ragged clothes and a very thin blanket, trying to put his body into subjection and deprivation to somehow merit God's favour and gain salvation through this path of trying to earn something from God. He had a terrible time. He just could not compute this idea of trying to gain God's favour and putting himself through, as it were, pure hell to gain it. He felt that God was nothing short of a tyrant. How could a God demand such obedience from us to gain this salvation? 
Here's a quote, here's a, a, a thought on uh, Martin Luther from those times. During his early years, whenever Luther read what would become the famous Reformation text, Romans 1.17, his eyes were drawn not to the word faith, but to the word righteous. Who, after all, could live by faith but those who are already righteous? The text was clear on the matter. The righteous shall live by faith. Luther remarked, I hated that word, the righteousness of God, by which I have been taught according to the custom of, in use of all teachers that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. The young Luther could not live by faith because he was not righteous and he knew it. Luther's idea that he was taught back then is, to live by faith you first have to be righteous. I must be righteous, then I can live by faith. So he was trying to gain this righteous position in his life to become obedient perfectly before the Lord. He hated it because he couldn't get anywhere near it. That is till one night when Luther was reading through Romans and his eyes alighted upon Romans 1.17. And Romans 1.17 says this, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So his eyes locked onto this scripture. Once again, he read it many times before. But something different happened this time. And we'll read again as I read early this week about him. Meanwhile, he was ordered to take his doctorate in the Bible and become a professor at Wittenberg University. During lectures on the Psalms in 1513 and 1514 and a study of the Book of Romans, he began to see a way through his dilemma. At last, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. All of a sudden, the scales had fallen off his eyes. God's Spirit had unveiled to him the glorious truth of Romans 1.17, that righteousness is a gift of faith that God gives to us through the death of Christ. And what does he say there? The gates were flung open. A glorious picture here of freedom and release in the life of Martin Luther. The gospel had come alive to Martin Luther. He now saw God as a glorious, grace-filled God, not some evil tyrant. At last, in the life of Martin Luther, the gospel was beginning to breathe life into his dead, darkened soul. He devoured and devoured and devoured the scriptures once he began to see this truth, as it were, uh, unfolding before him. What happened next, though, in Luther's life is what really tipped him over to go into protest here with the church. A local monk called John Tetzel was selling indulgences to raise money for another cardinal who's trying to buy a position in the church. For a cardinal, who was sort of higher up the, the, the priest chain, for, for you to uh, buy another parish or to take another parish on in your responsibilities where you would get paid more, you actually had to buy that parish. You had to pay money back to the church in Rome in order to gain uh, um, that position in the next parish. So this cardinal who was looking to gain another position in, in another parish to increase himself up the, uh, the, the uh, order of uh, priesthood, I guess you might call it, he goes and hires a local monk, John Tetzel, and he gets him to sell indulgences. As we said before, they were buying favours from the Bishop of Rome to get people out of purgatory. So this John Tetzel goes out using massive guilt tactics on all the poor peasant farmers around Germany, getting them to buy indulgences so they could get their dear departed loved ones out of purgatory and on the road to heaven. So Tetzel went out there putting massive guilt 
on these poor people, taking absolute disadvantage of them in every way. Martin Luther saw this. He saw this tetzel going around. These people were complaining to him. And when Martin Luther saw this, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back for him. He was fuming. He was livid. He couldn't believe that the church would ordain and authorise this sort of activity to take place. These people are already suffering as peasant farmers, living in abject poverty. And you want to go and take more money off them to buy these things called indulgences which aren't even in the scriptures. He was hopping mad to say the least. He was fuming. He then went and posted on the door of the Wittenberg church where he was ministering what we know as the 95 Theses or the 95 Statements of Protest against church practices. The church door is like the notice board of the town. It's like the central place of the town. He goes there and writes down his 95 complaints against the church, puts them on there and nails them to the door of the Wittenberg church. And that's where we see that initial start here of October the 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther did that as the sort of marking date of the Reformation of uh, 500 years ago. Now, what flowed on from there was a whole number of meetings with church officials and town officials as well. Martin Luther all of a sudden now was engaged in uh, meeting with them. He was summoned to meet the church hierarchy and recant all of these 95 um, complaints or 95 theses or 95 protests that he put up. He was taken from meeting after meeting after meeting to try and recant this and put them all away and just accept what the church has said. Finally, he met the hierarchy in a very significant meeting and he responded with this in this last meeting. Luther replied, Unless I can be instructed and convinced with evidence from the Holy Scriptures or with open, clear and distinct grounds of reasoning, then I cannot and will not recant. But because it is neither safe nor wise to act against conscience. Then he added, Here I stand. I can do no other, God help me, amen. That was Martin Luther's last statement to this church meeting that he was summoned to. He said, I will not recant. It is neither safe to do so nor wise to act against conscience. He needed to be convinced from the Holy Scriptures. He needed to be convinced from the Bible whether he would recant any of those 95 theses or 95 statements of protest against the church of the day. With this, the Reformation was underway, well underway. Not started that particular day, but hundreds of years before with other reformers who come as well. Now, these three men are really only a fraction of the people involved here at the Reformation of that particular time. There were many, many more men and women and teenagers involved in that Reformation activity. I would encourage you to go to uh, Desiring God website. They've got a, a, um, uh, a place you can go which says, Here I Stand. If you, if you search that on the Desiring God website, you'll see 31 short biographies of uh, men and women and teenagers from the Reformation. They take about five or six minutes each to read. It's just a glorious story here of uh, how this Reformation unfolded. Can I say that these early Reformers never wanted to start a revolution against the church? They weren't setting out to um, set up a revolt. They wanted to work with the church. They wanted to reform the church. They wanted to get the church of the day to begin to change. They didn't want to set out uh, to set up a revolution and see a revolt happen. What happened during this particular time was a revolt did take place. All of a sudden the peasant farmers 
sort of got onto Martin Luther's case and said, hang on, that's about time someone spoke against this church. So they set up a revolt. Martin Luther went out and met the peasant farmer and said, don't revolt, we want to reform the church. So he was actually trying to stop any revolution taking place at that particular time. But ultimately, though, the Roman church had become so corrupt and so wealthy that they could not turn back from these abuses. They'd become so enamoured or so um, used to this extravagant lifestyle and high positions in society, they could not come back down from that. They wanted to keep that same lifestyle and those same abuses that they had been used to for centuries and centuries. So unfortunately and ultimately, a break did come with the Roman church over the next few decades. And that has be, then become what we call as the Protestant Reformation. It was the protest. becomes Protestant Reformation. And here exchange uh, is the Protestant church. We are a branch of the reformers and their God-ordained movement from 500 years ago, believing the same tenets that they were actually beginning to proclaim back then in that Reformation. So that's a bit of brief history of what's taken place and how it got to where it did back in the 1500s. And uh, today, what are the big ticket items we think about that still affect us today that we can see come out of that Reformation process and to see what's come out of history for us today to learn from? Here's a couple of things, but major, major things out of the Reformation. Firstly, uh, the Bible, the Word of God, was brought back into the church. That was one of the clear things here out of the Reformation. The Bible was brought back into the church and clearly held up there uh, to be God's Word. Slowly, over all those centuries, the Bible was pushed aside and hidden away. It was hidden away by language and all sorts of things. The authority of the Scriptures was lost as the sole authority, and the Bible was no longer the highest authority in the church over all those centuries. The Bishop of Rome and his teachings were now equal authority with the Bible, and slowly they became centre stage over and above the Bible. The Reformers, though, as they read the Bible, had the light of truth begin to beam into their darkened souls and helpless souls. And Luther and many others were burdened down trying to earn merit to gain salvation with God, but they found that it was just hopeless. But then the gospel, the word of God, became good news when they really realised the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And as Martin Luther said before, the gates were flying open. Joy flooded his soul. He was in paradise now because of the gospel. The reformers then set about to get the Bible printed in all languages so that everybody could learn about God. What they had discovered in this sort of this freedom of grace and this incredible uh, joy that the gospel had brought to them, they now wanted to get the Bible out in all languages so everybody, uh, peasant farmers to nobility, whoever, they wanted them to be able to read the scriptures for themselves and see this joy and freedom that God brings uh, through Christ. William Tyndale is uh, the man responsible for this Bible. In the uh, 1500s as well, he was part of the reformers. He went to uh, Europe to uh, translate the New Testament into English for us. The English Bible we have today is the result of William Tyndale's translation (coughs) exercise 500 years ago. He eventually was hunted down by the church and burned at the stake. The same. These people pay dearly for giving us God's words so that we could see the same joys that they could see and the same freedom that they could see out of that. So from then on, in Protestant churches, the Bible alone has become the rule of faith and practice for all of life. They held up there the scriptures alone. This is one really strong lesson that we can learn from that here and learn from the, from the history and the reformers. We must never stray from the Bible. We must never stray from God's truth. 
the church itself previously had for centuries and centuries strayed away from God's truth. And it just strayed down into the path of corruption and abuse. The reformers brought back the word of God. And that's the lesson for us today. Never, ever stray from God's truth. This is where our freedom is found. This is where our life is found. This is where all of our fulfillment in life is found in these scriptures as it gives us the right mindset on how to approach this world. The other thing that came out of the Reformation was the uh, being justified by faith. It became a soul-liberating truth that the Reformers had discovered. The Roman Church again had preached a faith plus works for salvation. But that slowly moved into a primarily works-based salvation and faith was nearly lost altogether. This left the masses and masses of people, hundreds of thousands of people, in guilt-ridden, hopeless despair. They could see no way out because they could never be good enough. Maybe they might hope to get to purgatory if they died, and maybe their family who were still remaining on earth might buy enough indulgences to get them out. That was the best many of them could hope for. But then the reformers, as they read the Bible, and they read that the Bible taught justification or right position with God by faith in Jesus Christ in his death on the cross for them, it opened up their eyes to a whole new picture of who God was. This is what they read in Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This was like a searchlight that absolutely beamed into their hearts when they read that. All of a sudden, as I said before, the scales fell off. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It was like the burden of their soul had been lifted. They'd gone from night to day, from darkness to light. They went from guilt to joyful celebration when they realised what Jesus had done for them. Charles Wesley writes that song, My chains fell off and my heart is free. He's seen the same thing in Romans that these same reformers had seen a few hundred years earlier. This justification by faith, this right standing with God doesn't come from how I earn it or merit or what good things I do. It comes from what Jesus has already done for me. It absolutely broke their chains and their heart were free and they could rejoice and worship a glorious God who had rescued them and saved them through his son. Two of the main things that came out of those Reformation were that. We can be inspired by those reformers as well. I would encourage you to go and uh, desiring God and here I stand and read that. There was one I read earlier this week was about uh, a woman, incredibly brave woman. Um, for those who may have done some history in the monarchy of England, there was uh, Lady Jane Grey who was the shortest monarch in all of England's history. She was queen for nine days. Nine days is all she was queen for. She was beheaded at the end of those nine days. Um, another queen come along, another sister, stepsister come along um, and uh, deposed her and uh, she told uh, Lady Jane Grey, you need to recant your belief in the justification of faith. You need to uh, say that as a heresy and you need to recant that. If you don't, um, you'll be in the Tower of London and you'll be headed uh, within the week. Uh, Lady Jane Grey, who was a confirmed uh, Protestant, believed in the teachings of the Bible, uh, held her view that I believe that I'm justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not by any works that I could possibly do. So uh, 
the deposing queen sent Lady Jane Grey to be headed. Now, Lady Jane Grey was only 17 years old. 17 years old. A teenager. So strong with the convictions of the gospel in her heart. This was the, the inspiration that we can receive from the reformers like this. Here's a young girl just standing on the convictions of the gospel. She's got a whole life to live ahead of her. She only has to recant. She walks out of the Tower of London and goes free. She said, I will never recant on the gospel. Incredible inspiration we can receive as we think about history and think about these reformers. <coughs> What's God doing through all this? What's he doing? His mysterious workings are just that, a mystery. We could well ask, God, why did you let the church slide so far down this sort of path of corruption and abuse? Why did it go so far in that direction? We don't know. We can't answer those questions. We just have no answers for that at all, why God would allow that. God is God, and he does all things according to the counsel of his will. We don't know. But what we can say is that God never, ever gave up on the church. God never, ever threw the church out in the the throwaway basket and just did away with it. Not at all. God didn't give up on revealing the gospel to people and revealing the truth and the power of Christ into their lives, as we see through some of the lives of these reformers. In very real ways, the darkness of those days help us to see the gospel today burn brighter and brighter through how God restored the church and brought back with it the clarity of truth. Despite those really dark and cold times, Jesus was continuing to build his church, even though history in many respects might say it was in the doldrums there for centuries and centuries. Jesus and Peter were having a conversation one day and Jesus asked Peter, Peter, who do you think I am? Peter responds with this, Jesus, you are the son of God. And then Jesus responds back to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus will build his church. Jesus will build his church. Despite the darkness we may see in history, despite all of the coldness we may see in history, doesn't matter how dark it may get, Jesus will continue to build his church. This is the picture we get from the Reformation of what God was doing. Jesus is building a church and he will cut through all the darkness of our lives and cut through all the darkness of the community around about us and he will rescue and he will save people. And this is the same glorious privilege that we get here at Exchange in Greater Shepherd and Community to build his church, to allow those same gospel truths to penetrate deeply into our hearts so that we too could sing that same song, my chains fell off, my heart is free and begin to proclaim this glorious gospel and see his church get built despite the darkness of the world we may live in. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you today that we uh, have this glorious opportunity to uh, come and gather around your word. Thank you today that we can also talk about history. Thank you today for the Reformation, Lord, from uh, perhaps 800 years ago, the Lord, you were stirring in the hearts of people back then. Uh, a purity of the gospel, a return to the scriptures, a return, a return to the truth of your word. Uh, Lord, today I pray that you'll help us to be inspired by these men, women and teenagers, Lord, who had deep, deep convictions of the gospel and, Lord, paid for it with their lives.
to see the church where it is today. Lord, I thank you that you never gave up on the church. Father, I thank you that you did not uh, discount the church altogether. But Lord, you rescued and you saved the church. And today you're rescuing and you're saving the church still. So Father, today I pray that you'll help us. You'll help us to be part of that rescue mission. Here at Exchange, we get to proclaim those same truths. And I pray, God, that you'll help us to uh, use these uh, freedoms and liberties that we've been given uh, by the forefathers and uh, people and the generations that have gone before us to freely proclaim uh, these glorious truths of the gospel and pray that, Lord, uh, your church will continue to grow and continue to grow for the glory of Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, this I ask and this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Any questions? Dan. Sure. Good question. Dan's question is um, if the canon of scripture was um, recognised in 397 AD and uh, did that include the Apocrypha? Some of you might say, what on the earth are those books? Um, if it was included in the canon of scripture, why don't we have it today? That's uh, the question. Um, the Apocrypha wasn't included in the canon of scripture back then. They were accepted as not biblical books but extra books at the time. So when I say the Apocrypha, you might have heard the Book of Maccabees. Um, the Book of Solomon is another one there as well. There's about three or four books there uh, that are writings around the same time as the biblical books. But when the uh, church fathers, church leaders of that time got together to put like a, a bit of a test upon what is what they believe to be inspired and not inspired, uh, none of those books made that test. So there were certain authenticity tests, there were certain sort of factual tests they put together. So the books of the Apocrypha, Maccabees and other ones, um, were not recognised as the canon of scripture or uh, the rule of scripture. The word canon means like straight line or rod. So that wasn't recognised to be biblical books back then in, in AD 397. You can use them maybe for some contextual help, what was life like back then, but not as inspired scripture to say we build doctrine out of that and build a belief out of that. The Roman Church still does. I'm not exactly sure the exact place they have it, but they still include that um, in a Roman Catholic Bible. Yeah, well, I'm not sure they build doctrine out of that. Not exactly sure, but a monk was sort of where you started and then you could keep progressing on from there. Monk was like a, a priest's assistant. Paid? Um, paid somewhat by the church and also they gained their own money by doing things like selling indulgences and things like that. God was doing in that period while the church was sliding was preserving the scriptures. 
Yep. So it leads basically to copy precisely the scriptures and a lot of scriptures, a lot of um, things were, were destroyed. Yep. But uh, in these last days, we have scriptures, you know, like going within a couple of hundred years yep. of actually being written. Yep. Whereas some of the histories, the other histories might, the only copy there is, Thousand years yeah. Yep. So the and Yep. Totally. God did preserve the scriptures all the way along. I mean, they weren't. Were they lost in that nine hundred year period or thousand year period? No, not at all. Um, the manuscripts that Rob's referring to, uh, some of those are with, within about one hundred and thirty or forty years of the original writings. Now, when a manuscript is a copy of the original letter that the Apostle Paul or Peter sent to the church, so the manuscript is a direct copy of that. The Bible has uh, manuscripts, like I said, 130, 140 years from, uh, from the time of the original document. Some of the other books or writings you might re- uh, know of, Plato, Aristotle and some of those guys, um, some of the Roman history, the closest manuscripts some of those are is like 800 years later. So there's this massive, massive gap here where the scriptures have been preserved by God. So we can totally believe that the scriptures we have today weren't affected by that 900 year of corruption and abuse. Yes, Never. Yeah, the idea of God's mystery and allowing people to, from the church to fall is still tied in with the freedom of will God gives man that we can reject God, we can reject his sovereignty and we pay the price um, and we're seeing that day to day. We have a choice just out of an Egypt by the belief that we're going to reject it. Um, and as we choose to feed ourselves, he said the other week on um, the Holy Spirit, we either feed ourselves on the Spirit and the Word of God, or we feed ourselves on the Word. That's a choice that we make yep. in, in the face of God. And so we can do the same thing. Today. There are churches being built today where they still want believe their societies for the big buildings and so forth. Yep. Um, to these mega churches in, and in America. Yeah. Yep. There's a mystery there, uh, which is what Neville's alluding to: is is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. I mean, God is sovereign over all things, and His rule will happen. But man has this responsibility as well. So we can't. How do we compute that? That's a whole other sermon somewhere else. But yeah, people just didn't want it, didn't follow it, so rejected it. Well, good. Let's uh, finish with a song. Um, we will have about maybe 15 minutes or so for morning tea and then we might head into the um, lounge room, I think you call the other room, lounge room, and we'll uh, go through that child safe uh, activity as well. So thanks guys. If you do want to catch up with me for any prayer or any more questions, um, we'd be more than happy and love to catch up with you. Thank you. Let's stand and sing Rock of Ages once more.